couple of verses. Then we'll see why what they say about the Old Testament also applies to the New Testament. And at that stage, uh, hopefully, you're actually convinced that to be a Christian, to be somebody who trusts in Jesus through believing the apostolic word, is actually to receive the word of God, receive the Bible as the word of God written. And then we'll say, well, if that's the case, what does that mean for us? And then in the following weeks, we'll look at have we actually got it in our hands and in our translations? And then finally, how we interpret it. So again, I'll go fairly quickly over this because if you read the New Testament, if you read the epistles, uh, this is actually uh, self-evident. You know, you, you, we've just been finishing Hebrews and you think, full of the Old Testament, and he's teaching it as the Word of God. You read Romans, full of the Old Testament. You read John, full of the Old Testament. Anyhow, uh, you can see uh, uh, there they refer to many events in the history of Israel. Abraham, of course, is uh, very prominent. Uh, they refer to the Old Testament for their ethics. The whole law is fulfilled in this uh, one command or children, obey your parents. They use it to establish doctrine in Romans and Galatians and Hebrews. And yes, they even use it in the matter of uh, tongues. And that back projector's gone off. Which would create some some uh, complexity for me. Good. Uh, so again, that's uh, pretty self-evident. Um, uh, but let's look at uh, start to look at the way uh, they quote it, the way they ascribe uh, authorship. So you see, the word of the psalmist is actually what God says, what the Holy Spirit says. And again, God said a certain day, they acknowledge the human authors, but it's actually God speaking. God said a certain day, calling it today when he spoke through David the prophet. And of course, that's not just the author of uh, Hebrews, <laughs> one of particular interest to ministers, uh, don't muzzle the ox while it's treading out the grain. Now he says, oh, good. He says, is it about oxen that God is concerned? Is, is the implication of that is, of course, that instruction given in Deuteronomy is instruction given by God, and it actually has another purpose, not just to regulate the use of oxen, regulate ministers, right? Uh, and uh, again, Acts one. The scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through David. Word of man, but definitely the word of God. It's what the Holy Spirit spoke, which of course was uh, 2 Samuel 23, David's own view of himself. So they can ascribe scripture to both the human authors and uh, to uh, God. And then the Apostle Paul has this uh, particular uh, verse when he says, what's the advantage of the Jews? Much in every way. Uh, to them have been entrusted uh, the very words of God. Uh, and, and the word used there is actually uh, the word that was used of, say, oracles, like the Delphic Oracle, to emphasise that it was God's own words. The words that came from the mouth of the Delphic Oracle were reckoned to be the words of the God Apollo, God's own words. And he says, to them are entrusted the very words of God. This is their great advantage. They've got the word of God. And then uh, 
Warfield <coughs> draws attention to the way uh, they can the, the 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 apostles can move between speaking about something Scripture says and something which God says, and so he has these examples. So Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles and announced the gospel. Scripture announced the gospel. What God says, actually, Scripture says. Scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up. Actually, what Scripture says, God says. And actually, uh, what, what, what God says, Scripture says, and what Scripture says, God says, as we've seen. When God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. In speaking of the angels, he says, he makes his angels spirits. Uh, words that aren't attributed to God in the Psalms, actually, what God says, what God says. And so, uh, the point uh, that uh, Warfare is making is that for the apostles, it's actually interchangeable. Scripture is spoken of as saying what God in Scripture says, and God is spoken of as saying what the human author of Scripture says. In their mind, what Scripture says, God says. What God says is what Scripture says. So they don't make that uh, distinction. Uh, Again, uh, just another sovereign Lord, you made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and you spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, Dave, our father David. What the human author says, God says, and uh, what God says, Scripture says. Uh, and if they have this conviction also uh, that the Bible is a book for Christians. Again, just a couple of references. Everything that was written in the past was written to teach us. Or well, 1 Corinthians 10, when he's reflecting on a number of events uh, in Numbers, these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things. Verse 11, these things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us. Now, how can they say that? Well, because they believe God is the author, God's been revealing his plan. God is now fulfilling his plan. Yes, so these things were actually always intended for us. You won't say that unless you think God is the author of Scripture and he had a purpose in his revelation which is now being fulfilled in the coming of Jesus and the calling of uh, people uh, to himself. And so... Uh, for uh, the apostles, they're convinced, like their master, uh, that the Old Testament's the word of God. And notice it is not theologically peripheral. It is theologically central to understanding in God's, God's purposes in Christ. Remember the gospel, say Romans 1 tells us who he is. Right? Uh, this is the gospel that God spoke beforehand through the prophets. Right? concerning uh, the Son of God. It tells us it's the Old Testament provides all the categories for thinking about Jesus' death, propitiation, sacrifice, redemption. They're all Old Testament ideas applied to Jesus. Uh, it's from the Old Testament that they tell us how we are related to God through faith. Remember Genesis 15.6, Abraham. It's from the Old Testament that they draw the scope of the saving message in Romans 15, where he talks about the inclusions of the Gentiles. It's from the Old Testament that we learn how to live 
Romans 13, what the content of love is. The goal of history, Revelation, is full of the Old Testament. Even the relationship between the sexes, where Paul teaches about in 1 Corinthians 11, Ephesians 5, 1 Timothy 2, he is always drawing on the Old Testament. So the Old Testament is theologically central. And in their view, it's not possible to know Christ without the Old Testament, and Christ is the key to the Old Testament. All the promises of God find their yes in him, and they expected conformity to its revelation. So the Old Testament, believing the Old Testament to be the word of God, is not incidental to apostolic Christianity. They claim a real unity and continuity in God's actions in the past, and in Christ through the fulfilment of the Old Testament. Why is it so important to them? Because they are convinced it's the word of God, the written words are his words, and that God will be true. He'll be faithful to what he said. That's why it has to be fulfilled. And this conviction makes relating to the Old Testament of central importance. See, they were very keen to defend the consistency and continuity of the gospel with the past against you know, charges that they were rejecting God's revelation of himself in the past. They knew that for what, what God, for what God had done in Jesus to be recognised as a work of God, it had to be consistent with God's past and promised work revealed in his Old Testament, revealed in his word. And you see that concern, whether it's in Romans or Hebrews. So it's, it's fundamentally central to the apostles and their preaching and their teaching of the gospel that the Old Testament is the word of God. And they do give us a uh, oops. Uh, they do give us a doctrine of scripture. Uh, a, a famous uh, passage, Paul speaking uh, to Timothy and saying, "How from infancy you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus." All scripture, he says, is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness so the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, what's the apostle actually saying there? Let's uh, think about it. It could be all and every scripture. He's speaking of scripture both in its entirety and in every part. And when he says scripture, that word that he's that's used, uh, the graphe, translated scripture here, is in the New Testament used exclusively of the holy writings, of the sacred writings. That is, it, it's, it's characterising, he is characterising something that is already known and not giving a test for discovering the scriptures. When he's talking of the scripture, it is known, it's a set body. It is what we call our Old Testament. And you notice that he's actually affirming something of the product, not of the authors. Even though other versions, like the CSB says all uh, scripture is inspired, uh, the, he's actually speaking of the scripture, and the NIV is probably preferable. God breathed. It, it comes from the mouth of God. He's not talking about something that's happening in the human author. He's actually affirming something of the product, the written product, and it is the written product. He's saying that comes, in a sense, from the mouth of God. It's carried along by the breath of God, and that is the source of its 
usefulness in the lives of God's people. So it's very strong, isn't it? And he's, of course, talking about the Old Testament. He's saying that comes from the mouth of God. That's why it's useful and that's why it's holy. And again, exactly the same kind of thing is in in 2 Peter, uh, where Peter says, and this again is... uh, He's actually suggesting it is even more sure and reliable than his own witness of Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. We have the prophetic word made more sure. And he says, no prophecy of scripture comes from the prophet's own interpretation. That is, it does not originate in the prophet's speculation because no prophecy ever came by the will of man. Instead, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Again, he is affirming something of the product that the product is from God. Yes, they're human words. Yeah, men spoke from God. But they're carried along by the Holy Spirit. That is, the Spirit, in their writing, brings them to the Spirit's destination so that ultimately it's the Spirit, God himself, who is the author of Scripture. Again, very strong doctrine of Scripture, isn't it? Again, speaking of the Old Testament, but those words are the words of God given to us uh, by his uh, Spirit. Now, as I say, everything we've said so far in terms of Jesus' attitude uh, to the Old Testament and in terms of uh, the the, uh, apostles' attitudes to the Old Testament is actually spoken of in relation to, uh, sorry, of the scriptures spoken of in relation to the Old Testament. What of the New Testament, uh, which is important? Well, first of all, we would expect inscripturation uh, because of the nature of the revelation given in Christ, you know, a real incarnation, but as I've said before, of universal significance. He is the saviour of the world. He is the son of God coming. It is for all people. Now, how will that be brought? How will all people have an accurate record of that? How will they be able to know what happened? Only if it's written down. Permanent public record. And let me say, it's much better than the internet. Right? It is much more permanent. You can't get on and change it and you can't. No, it's written. It's there. So, so you'd expect inscripturation and it came to a people who had the concept of scripture, right? It didn't have to invent it. It came to the Jews. They expected God's revelation to be written down. We've seen that from the time of Moses. So we'd expect the fulfilment of Old Testament revelation to be written down as well. They were, they were prepared for it. And thirdly, Jesus actually did have an expectation of the future, didn't he? He was conscious of his own significance. He knew he would die and rise. He envisaged the ongoing effect and effort of making disciples, which involved teaching all that he had commanded for generation after generation. Oh, we we see him anticipating. Think of that incident, Mark 14, the anointing at Bethany, he says... Wherever the gospel is preached throughout the whole world, this will be 
told, right? He anticipated it going through the whole world and there being a record of it. He intended to build a church. So we would expect God's revelation in Christ to be written down for others. And secondly, what we see in, uh, in the New Testament is that Jesus prepared for it to be written down. That is, he prepared for it and authorised the New Testament by commissioning and equipping the apostles. Now, apostle at one level can just mean a messenger. You see that in John thirteen sixteen. No apostle, no messenger is greater than his master. And 2 Corinthians 8 speaks of the apostles, the representatives of the churches. Epaphroditus was your apostle, your messenger. So uh, on the one level it just means messenger. And as we read uh, the New Testament, term apostle can be applied to a wider group, 1 Corinthians 15.7, then to all the apostles. But central to the usage of the term apostle is actually 12. The 12, all nine of the references in Matthew, Mark, Luke and John uh, of apostles are to the twelve and of course uh, they have a particular role, a God-given role which they are conscious of and that is to be a witness to the resurrection. They know their role is to be a witness and Jesus chooses them and appoints them as apostles and that's quite significant because uh, Part of the Old Testament background is this notion of commissioned messengers. The, the rabbis had this notion. And it's one who's authorised for a particular function or task as the agent of another and, uh, and in fulfilling that task, they actually act with the authority of the one who sent them. So the rabbis had that notion and that's what we see of, in relation to the apostles. Jesus gives them a specific task and in fulfilling that task, they act with his authority so they can forgive sins. And Jesus says, he who receives you receives me. And he who receives me receives the one who uh, sent him. Now think about uh, the 12. They're deliberately called uh, after Jesus has been in prayer. So they're deliberately chosen group, his conscious group. They are trained throughout his ministry. Uh, he chooses them so that they might be with him. He involves them in casting out demons. Remember from Mark 8, he takes them aside. They're especially taught and they're especially taught about his death and resurrection, even though they don't understand it and they get confused about it, but he deliberately tells them about that. And they have a specific task, and that is to be witnesses to the nations. We see that in Acts chapter 8, don't we? That you'll be my witnesses in Judea and Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the world, and they are to wait until the Spirit comes on them so they can bear that witness. So not only have they been especially trained for their special task, but they are also especially equipped. The promises that Jesus makes about the paraclete, the counsellor coming, are promises first of all to the apostles and they are promises given by Jesus in part to make them confident that they will be empowered for their mission but also to reassure us, the recipients of the gospel they preach, that their word 
is the word of God. So, for example, but when the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send on my name, he will teach you all things and he will remind you of everything I have said to you. Now, that is not a promise to you that you'll never forget your memory verses, right? Or of special insight, right? Because, you know, but it is a promise to us that Jesus will so equip the apostles that they will be able to do the task that he has entrusted to them. So that when we are listening to their word, we are listening reliably to Jesus. Okay, It's pretty important. I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear, but when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears and he will tell you what is yet to come. Now notice that. Jesus is saying, you didn't get it all in these three years. All that you will need to know to equip my people. But when he comes, he will guide you into all truth and he will glorify Jesus uh, through that. And so they operate with the authority of Jesus. We see that in, say, John 20. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. They are the continuation of Jesus' mission to save. Sorry, that's 1 John. I didn't put 1 John 20. He breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they're not forgiven. Because of their commissioning and equipping, they can actually exercise Jesus' authority through the gospel, through the witness they bear to him. Jesus' authority to forgive or to judge. Which is why, believing their gospel, we are forgiven. And if we don't believe their gospel, we hear the sentence of the gospel on our lives. So, uh, the, 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 the authors, in a sense, of the New Testament, we can talk more about that when we come to canon, have actually been called, trained, commissioned and equipped by Jesus to bring us Jesus' word, which is uh, the word of God. And we see that with the apostolic attitudes to their own authority. And again, uh, you know, there are lots of other references there, and I'm only, you know, going to look at one in detail, but, you know, Paul insists that his gospel is not from man, but from God. He speaks to Corinthians 10 of the authority that the Lord has given him, for building up. You know, we've already seen 1 Thessalonians 2 that when the Thessalonians received Paul's preaching, they received it as it really was, the word of God. But let's look at 1 John. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched. So that's witness, isn't it? He's telling them what they have experienced. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We have seen it and testify to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you may have fellowship with God. No, 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 it says so that you may have fellowship with us and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. We only have fellowship with the Father and the Son as we have fellowship with the apostles by receiving their word as true. True witness 
to Jesus, what they've seen and heard and touched. The only way you can have fellowship with the Father and the Son is through receiving the apostolic word as the word commissioned and sent into the world by Jesus himself. You can't bypass the apostles and their word. They are very conscious of their, the authority of their own writings and of their ministry. And yes, of their own writing. So that great and encouraging verse in 2 Peter 3, speaking of Paul, he writes the same way in all his letters, speaking of them, in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort, as they do the other scriptures. That is, word, written word from God. And 1 Timothy 5, for scripture says, do not muzzle the ox while it's treading out the grain, and the worker deserves his wages. The first is from Deuteronomy. The second, the only known occurrence of it is in Luke, is in Luke's gospel. So reckoned already uh, to be scripture. Uh, and of course, they thought that their word ought to be read. I charge you before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers and sisters. Now, to actually understand the significance of that, you think, what did they model their meetings on? They modelled it on the synagogue. What was at the heart of the synagogue service? The reading of God's word. But Paul puts his letter up there with the scripture. It's to be read too. Uh, and he expects it to be conformed to. Take special note of anyone who does not obey our instruction in this letter. Don't associate with them. Or 1 Corinthians 14. Did the word of God originate with you? Are you the only people it has reached? If anyone thinks that they are a prophet or otherwise gifted by the Spirit, let them acknowledge what I am writing to you is the Lord's command. The test of really having the Spirit of Jesus. Being genuinely spiritual is actually acknowledging the apostolic word as the Lord's word, as God's word. They are aware of their own authority and they expect it to be conformed to. And of course, that is the way the apostolic word was received from the beginning. Okay, uh, That's actually what makes people Christians, remember, believing the gospel, believing the message the apostles preached. And so Christian congregations started off thinking that they had heard God speaking through the apostles, and their response to the written word was exactly the same. When they received the written word, they kept it. They circulated it. They read it. They believed it and conformed their life to it. They never for a moment considered that those ministers of the new covenant had less authority than the ministers of the old covenant. In fact, the gospel they preached, the fulfilment, was the fulfilment and climax of the Old Testament and so it actually in their understanding partook of the character and authority of the whole scriptures and so Christian believers have from the outset received the apostolic writings the New Testament as the word of God that's their starting position and that'll be important when we think about canon the gospel word precedes the church and brings it into being. It's not the church that creates the gospel word. The word of the apostles comes first in the commissioning of Jesus. 
He sends them out into the world and through the apostolic preaching, Jesus gathers his people to himself and he exercises his authority over his people through their word on their uh, mission. So the New Testament writings have always been regarded as authoritative, uh, both by the apostles, the first hearers, and the church ever since. And that's by our Lord's design, intention, and equipping. Uh, it's his provision for those other sheep who are not of this fold, who must hear his voice, who will believe in him through the apostolic witness. Now, I'm about to move on to the second part. So we're saying testimony of scripture to itself is that it's the word of God. Reception of the gospel tells you you're hearing the word of God. Jesus, who is central to all revelation, taught that the Old Testament, the written word, was the word of God. The apostles, in all their preaching and teaching, show that they think the written word, the Old Testament, is the word of God. And the New Testament, that is, the witness they were commissioned and empowered by Jesus to bear, partakes of that character as well. Breathed out by God. Men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Truly human words, but actually God's word, because God through his spirit has brought them to the destination he intended. Now, any questions before I go on to look at the consequences of that for us? Simon. Um, Can I I just uh, point out one passage that if people stumbled upon, they would find... Um, tricky in terms of the idea that all of Paul's words... 1 Corinthians 7, right? Yes. (laughs) Um, So, uh, Paul writes, um, To the married I give this command, and then in brackets, not I but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband, but if she does, she remains unmarried, or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband must not divorce his wife. And then, in verse 12, To the rest I say this, and in brackets, I not the Lord if any brother has a wife and, and yeah, goes yeah. on to an instruction. Yeah, yeah. And, and hopefully you're, you're familiar with that. Now, there are two things to be said about that. First of all, it shows that the apostle is conscious that the Lord has spoken on divorce, Matthew 19, right? So he is aware that in the gospel tradition the Lord has spoken on it, right? But he also is aware that now he's confronting a new situation that was not dealt with in the gospel. And uh, that is uh, where a believer is married to an unbeliever. And Jesus never addressed that situation. Uh, So he says, I'm telling you this. But he doesn't for a minute suggest that what he's saying is any less authoritative. So he's showing historical awareness, right? But he's also saying, I'm now addressing a new situation. So this is what I'm saying, but actually... Never is it suggested that he thinks that what he is saying is less authoritative. This is God's guidance for people in this new situation. And let me say, it's entirely incidental and could set the rabbits running in all the wrong directions, but it's also an indication that our Lord's teaching on divorce does not address every possible situation, which is something to be remembered when people seek to generalise from it. But anyhow, 